You're listening to Yap, Young and Profiting Podcast, a place where you can listen, learn, and profit. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Hala Taha, and on Young and Profiting Podcast, we investigate a new topic each week and interview some of the brightest minds in the world. My goal is to turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your everyday life, no matter your age, profession, or industry. There's no fluff on this podcast, and that's on purpose. I'm here to uncover value from my guests by doing the proper research and asking the right questions. If you're new to the show, we've chatted with the likes of ex-FBI agents, real estate moguls, self-made billionaires, CEOs, and best-selling authors. Our subject matter ranges from enhancing productivity, how to gain influence, the art of entrepreneurship, and more. If you're smart and like to continually improve yourself, hit the subscribe button because you'll love it here at Young and Profiting Podcast. This week on Yap, we're chatting with marketing mastermind, CEO, speaker, and bestselling author, Jay Abraham. Jay is the founder and CEO of The Abraham Group and is a world-renowned marketing strategist, business innovator, and entrepreneurial advisor. He's mentored some of the biggest business titans in the world like Tony Robbins, Damon John, and Stephen Covey earning him the nickname Mentor of the Mentors. Over the past 30 years, Jay has consulted thousands of companies, including the likes of Microsoft, IBM, and FedEx. Since he was just 20 years old, Jay has been helping companies solve problems and increase their bottom lines, working across hundreds of industries throughout his career. You can absorb many of his life's learnings from his famous book, Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got. In today's episode, we'll go deep on Jay's signature strategy of preeminence and learn why you need to fall in love with your customers as opposed to your products and services. We'll gain an understanding of how we can borrow marketing and business strategies from one industry and then implement them into another to gain an edge over our competition. And we'll get Jay's key strategies for marketing, including his Parthenon strategy to gain multiple lead generation channels and the host beneficiary relationship strategy to gain direct access to our ideal customers. If you want to learn business and marketing secrets from one of the most highest paid consultants in the world, this Yap episode is one you don't want to miss. Hi, Jay. Welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm tickled and flattered to be here. I hope we'll have a lot of fun together. I am so excited. I mean, I've been studying you for the last week and I'm so impressed with everything that you've done. You've worked with stars like Damon John. You've been the man behind things like Icy Hot. You are just such an expert in so many different things and I can't wait to pick your brain. Uh, But first, I want to take it way back. I want to start off uh, when you were 18 years old. That's when you actually started as an entrepreneur. You're, you know, in your 70s now. So you've been doing it for decades and decades. Long time, very long time. But why did you, you know, decide to be an entrepreneur straight out the gate? Uh, Talk to us about that. Pretty unemployable. I got started at 18 because I was married and I had two kids at 20 and no negotiable uh, skill I don't have. I'm not saying it with pride. I have no formal education. And I had the need of somebody 40 when I was... 18 and nobody cared. And the only people that would give me opportunity were crazy, but very impressive entrepreneurs in my city, Indianapolis, where I was born and raised. And they would never give me a salary, but they'd give me a chair and maybe a desk or a table and and so much for every 
sale I made or so much for every new distribution source I generated and so much for every lead I brought in or whatever the, the correlation was. And I was never paid a fixed salary. So I was always doing two to five things concurrently to pay the rent. And when you only eat when you earn, you figure out very quickly what works and what doesn't, and more specifically, what works better. And then you, if you're pragmatic, you default towards that. And, and as I was doing it, last thing I'll say, and it gets probably to something you'll ask me, I jumped around, not from business to business, but industry to industry. And as I did so, I made uh, a profoundly valuable for myself and hopefully for the business world discovery and realization that people in one industry pretty much follow the herd. They do plus or minus, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent better or worse, what everybody else does the same way. But if you experience lots of unrelated industries, you see a broad spectrum of alternative ways to market, sell, distribute. Uh, you see different strategies, business models, value propositions, lead generation, conversion, access vehicles. And I figured out quite accidentally that I could borrow success approaches from outside an industry migrate them to an industry that was unfamiliar, maybe borrow two or three and turn them into a unique hybrid. And it would just explode the businesses that I was then associated with off the chart. And they all thought I was so brilliant. And truthfully, I was nothing more than a masterful, I guess you'd call me uh, an importer. I just imported approaches and concepts from outside and then fast forward and you're not asking but I'll give you a little prelude to the, to current I realized that the concept of best practices as it's taught most of the time even today is relatively flawed because it tends to be the best practices in a given industry not necessarily the highest best fastest safest uh, most high residual generating, actions and alternatives, it just tends to be the best practices that everybody else is following. And they tend to be more linear and more incremental in their yield than uh, exponential. And I started uh, really getting serious about that years ago, and it sort of evolved. That's a bigger answer than you wanted, but I hope it was useful. Super useful. Don't worry about it. You could talk as long as you want on this podcast. I'll always kind of steer you back into the right direction. So if we want to just focus a little bit about that time when you were basically getting all these experiences, you were freelancing. You mentioned that you didn't get any formal uh, business training. You didn't go to college. You didn't go to grad school. But when I was reading your work, I literally felt like I was getting a refresher from my MBA. And I felt I was like reading the textbooks that I read during my MBA. And it just goes to show that you don't need formal education to understand business. So I do want to talk about that a little bit. Like, What is the importance of getting experience? It is omni-important. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book. I read it a couple of years ago. Range, have you read that? No. So it was, very, it was a bestseller for a year or two. And it's a, a guy that studied high performance today. And he found out that the people that had the most expansive, diverse, experiential, and empirical background were much higher performers today than specialists because they had the context of understanding of a broad spectrum of, of scenarios, probabilities, outcomes that allow them to deal with scenarios today that are not, you can't really replicate yesterday. It's not like hindsight 
from yesterday gives you guideposts to today because it's a new world. So it was very interesting. But in my experience, the more you experience diverse spectrums of business, the more strength and the more advantage you have because you understand so much more than anyone else. I mean, I can, I used to laugh. I, I would say I'm the best person to sit next to on an airplane, even if you don't want to talk because I've been blessed to be exposed to a thousand plus industries, real industries, not just doing a keynote, but working on the front lines of capitalism. So I can engage people and ask questions no one's ever asked them and track with them and stimulate connectivity they've never thought about. And I'm learning all the time, but I think hopeless curiosity is one of the most powerful attributes, skills, power sources an individual can have if he or she channels it in the right direction and tries to really understand and process what they're observing, seeing, learning, you know, what's driving things happening. Uh, and, and I was blessed. I had, I, I wasn't formally trained, but I was, I was so, I was like, you come across, you come across very vivacious and pure and, and open to learning. And I was that way when I was young and everybody took me under the wing because I wasn't a threat. I, I tell people, this is a true story. I worked all night for three years and just drudgerous types of jobs so I could sit in the offices of some really uh, stunning entrepreneurs in Indianapolis and watch them do business. And they found me so fun and interesting and charming and, and inexplicably intriguing that they'd let me watch something. And when a call was done or a meeting was done, they would tell me what happened and the psychology. And I just like a sponge soaked it up. And then you fast forward, I've had some of the greatest mentors in the world, you know, the former, you know, the, the, the late Stephen M. R. Covey was one, you know, I've, you know, I've had a collaborative relationship with Tony Robbins for 30 years. You know, I was collaborating with one of the founders of FedEx. I can go back much past a lot of your, your viewers, probably uh, childhood, but it's, I just had wonderful people that taught me pieces of the puzzle and not in big forms like that, but in very, very cool, granular, contextual ways that made it come alive and dimensionalized it and animated it. So I understood it at such a deeper level. It's super interesting how you created your career and got all these experiences. So I guess one question I have for you about that is you worked many jobs at a time. Did that ever become a conflict when you were working for other people? And did you consciously make the decision to go from industry to industry to industry? Or did that just happen? And then you realize that you like getting experiences in new industries? I'm going to answer retrospectfully because I don't know retroactively. I've never thought about it deeply, but I think because I'm probably a poster boy for adult attention deficit, and I have a very either a high or a low boredom level, um, I can't sit in any one environment very long. And I found that I once it was very I was obsessed with learning the quintessence of what drove a business or a category inside a business. But once I understood it, uh, my my attitude was beyond a certain point. It was incremental. And I think I naturally of all my life 
defaulted towards trying to operate in what I call the exponential zone and everything where everything I was doing was going to produce a sort of an asymmetric yield for me or whoever I was helping. But it never was a conflict, although it was funny. In the early days, you're too young to know this, but in the late 70s, they re-legalized gold. And so you couldn't buy gold for a period of time. It was illegal. Then they legalized it and people were buying gold bullion and they were buying gold coins and they were buying rare coins. They were buying gold stocks and all this stuff. And I was in the gold business and we had one client that we, it was very cool. We took him from 300,000 to 500 million in about a year and a half, but they were doing one, one type of selling. They were selling what's called physical delivery where you just deliver it. And I wanted to do more things. I wanted to keep compete against ourselves and they wouldn't. So I picked up because I was never, I was always being paid for results, never paid for time. So nobody had an obligation. I had no obligation to anything, including exclusivity, actually, because I was only getting paid a fraction of what I made them. So I never would allow it to be exclusive. So when I couldn't get one gold company to do it another way, one was bank finance, one was, I mean, I had all kinds of different different interests. And I finally found I had at one time five different companies doing five different types of gold and rare coin and gold stock and collectibles at the same time, because each one wanted to just be one part of the puzzle. And so that was fun, but I've never had a conflict and uh, it's even funny with all, all truth, most people won't even, you know, everybody wants me to sign initially a confidentiality, but I have a mutual one. And because I've been exposed to so many things, I'll say, sure, I'll sign yours, but you've got to sign mine. And I probably know more stuff that you don't, and you know, that I don't, nobody signs it, which I'm not saying it arrogant, we just, you know, it's just and then we have a nice conversation because there's a higher level of mutual respect. But no, I've never had a, a problem with any kind of a conflict. I have a very if you study my work and you know that I've done all this work with the strategy of preeminence, I, I'd like to hope that I operate at a very elevated strata of integrity and uh, and high ethical plane. So I've never put myself in a position where there would be a I mean, if I do something that's similar but a different variation i always apprise the the other company and say look i gave you first choice and you didn't want to it's totally different you're welcome to do it and but no never been a problem and i don't think anyone would say that i operate out of integrity at least i hope they don't and now a quick break from our sponsors young and profiters they may call me the podcast princess but i'm also the linkedin queen I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales on LinkedIn because when it comes to B2B sales, LinkedIn has got that on lock. LinkedIn is where all the decision makers are hanging out. There are 180 million senior level decision makers on LinkedIn and 10 million C-suite decision makers. These people are on LinkedIn and they're in the mode to buy. They're using LinkedIn for their buying journey to research vendors or sales reps that they might work with, to look up how to solve their problems, to learn from industry thought leaders. They're in the mode to buy, whereas on other platforms, they're in the mode to be entertained. You want to get them in the right mindset. You want to cut through the noise with LinkedIn ads. In fact, 79% of B2B marketers rate LinkedIn as their top channel for paid media. 
And LinkedIn has the best targeting because they've got all these different inputs. People are putting their resume basically up on there. And so there's so many keywords that they can use to target the right decision makers so they can hear about how you solve their problems. And I've got a special gift for all you young and profiters who want to try LinkedIn ads. You can get $100 credit. LinkedIn was super generous. If you want to make B2B marketing everything it can be and get $100 credit on your next campaign, go to linkedin.com slash yap, Y-A-P. Again, if you want to claim your credit, go to linkedin.com slash yap. Terms and conditions apply. Young and profiters, we are all making money. But is your money hustling for you? Meaning, are you investing? Putting your savings in the bank is just doing you a total disservice. You got to beat inflation. I've been investing heavily for years. I've got an E-Trade account. I've got a Robinhood account. And it used to be such a pain to manage all of my accounts. I'd hop from platform to platform. I'd always forget my Fidelity password. And then I have to reset my password. I knew that needed to change because I need to keep track of all my stuff. Everything got better once I started using Yahoo Finance, the sponsor of today's episode. You can securely link up all of your investment accounts in Yahoo Finance for one unified view of your wealth. They've got stock analyst ratings. They have independent research. I can customize charts and choose what metrics I want to display for all my stocks so I can make the best decisions. I can even dig into financial statements and balance sheets of the companies that I'm curious about. Whether you're a seasoned investor or looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. So you've worked with over 10,000 clients across about a thousand or so industries. And to me, that is so interesting. The fact that you take strategies from one industry and you bring them to another and you help people maximize their business and disrupt industries. And so I'd love to hear some real concrete examples about bringing one strategy from one industry to another and how you help to elevate a business doing that. Well... How about if I start at the beginning and then fast forward? It will be like a, a, a bullet train leaving the tracks, okay? I love that. So ICHOT was my first introduction to the concept of marginal net worth, allowable cost, and 3D thinking. Uh, 3D thinking, so we can establish it right now. There's two kinds of a business owner, or probably two kinds of a P&L-oriented manager, ones that look at revenue minus expense equal profit. That's a 2D thinker. And ones that think of an asset they are acquiring uh, that that keeps producing residual yield. That's 3D thinking. It's sort of the way a PE firm would look at something. So I was introduced to my great benefit early in my career when we did ICHOT to 3D thinking. The man that engaged me bought this old, old company, Icy Hot, that was almost broke. And it was selling the same composition as the base product you see today, but it was selling it as a mail order product for $3. And it was not doing well. In fact, he was contemplating closing it until he did an analysis of any quantified the performance uh, metrics of the buyers. And what he found to his 
delight was that every time, even though they were almost out of business because they hadn't grown or added new buyers, every time they got a new buyer, every time they got 10 buyers who paid $3, eight of them would buy a jar or more every month ad infinitum until somebody came up with a cure for arthritis, bursitis, rheumatism. But of the eight, four of them would buy some other product concurrently in the in the line. And of the four, I'm just, I'm summarizing and simplifying it. Two would buy twice a year or more bulk. But bottom, bottom line was every time he brought in 10 new first time buyers at $3, even though two that didn't buy ever again, each one was worth $50 in, in revenue, which was high profit every year. And with that piece of distinction, he didn't have any marketing budget. You're a marketer. I'm a marketer. He gave me the task of going to radio stations, television stations, publications. This is pre-internet. There was no digital media. Uh, People had sold products to stick things in the packages with them and persuade them whenever they had unsold advertising or underutilized capacity, run ads for us or inserts for us selling our product for $3 and we let them keep not the $3, but $3 and 15 cents, which was more than anybody else was. And we let them not only keep that money, but actually have the money go to them. All we cared about was they rushed us the name so we could fulfill promptly so we could get the second order. But even though we were losing 55 cents uh, to, to do all this, we were getting our repeat orders, half of them within 10 days. So our cash flow was great. And by understanding that and being a relatively persuasive at that point, uh, salesman, we were able to get a thousand plus radio, television, and newspapers, magazines to run ads for us continuously. And we went from a few thousand buyers to over 500,000 in less than a year. But we accidentally got what would today be about $150 million worth of free advertising we didn't pay for, which forced retail distribution, which means people would go to their stores, their grocery, their drug and ask for it. They didn't have it. They'd call us. In 15 months, we sold the business that we bought for almost nothing, 20, 30,000 for 60 million to a pharmaceutical company that resold it again. And now I don't know who's got it today. But that wasn't even the most interesting thing. Talk about linear thinking. The pharmaceutical company that bought it only thought in terms of consumer products. They had no interest in the 500,000 buyer uh, database, nor did they have any interest in the over 1,000 media performance only distribution uh, channel we had built. We got to keep all that. And all we were prohibited to do was sell uh, a comparable type of an arthritis product. So we went right back. And that was my first experience. And as I got older, I realized even that was flawed because if you understand yield and you understand that every time you get 10, you get eight forever. And every one of the eight plus the other two are worth $50 a year. Even if we didn't have the cash, we could have paid out up to $49 in the first year to get a buyer and still made a dollar a buyer in year one and $50 in year two and $50 in year three and probably done a more explosive. But I didn't understand 
uh, allowable cost and marginal net worth. That was the first thing. The next thing I did that was very interesting. Can I pause you right there? There's one lesson I want to drill out here, and that's you employed something you call a host beneficiary relationship in that scenario. So basically you partnered with these radio stations and these TV stations and you said, hey, I'll give you the profit from the first order if we can have the rest of the order. So it was a win for them. You got the free ad space, they got the first sale, and then you got the repeat customer. So talk to us a little bit about what a host beneficiary relationship is. So my listeners know more about that specific strategy. So the concept of host beneficiary has many permutations, JV, strategic alliance, power partnering, endorsement, co-branding. I've been privileged that either myself or my colleagues and I have have engineered billions of dollars this, but the concept is someone else always has direct, trusted, credible access to the same buying influence you want to reach. That someone has spent a lot of time, money, effort building that credibility. If you can figure out who that someone or some entity or some anything, media, association, influencer, author, doesn't matter, is, and you can persuade them of your deservedness and you can structure the deal right, you can get them to take your product service to their audience. And if you do it masterfully, it's not a static thing. Like today they do affiliate and it's usually a one-time static promotion. But if you do it right, you become a permanently ensconced part of their whole business. I can tell you some stories like that. And you're getting a free ride off of tens, hundreds of millions of dollars of cumulative investment they've made in effort people, advertising facilities, technology, service people, product development, all this. And they associate and ascribe their trust and credibility to you. The easiest example I can make is a story that is told by uh, different ways, but it's told mostly about Baron Rothschild, the the wealthy uh, investment person in, in France, that somebody supposedly wanted Baron Rothschild to lend them $100,000 years ago. And he said, I won't lend you a penny, but I'll do something infinitely better. I will walk hand in hand or arm around you back and forth twice across the stock exchange. And when we're done, people will loan you all the money you want. But that's the story of that. To give you very specific, I'll give you a couple quick examples. I don't want to get into detail or I can. So We went, we exploded in the gold business when I was in the seminar business. It was pretty significant. I was about your age and we did $250 million, a quarter billion dollars in three years. And I spent a total fixed cost of 300 grand. But I did Tony Robbins partnered with me, Success Magazine, Nightingale Kona, that used to be the biggest audio publisher, 50 different newsletters partnered with me. Uh, the in-flights partnered with me. I only paid them a share of the people that registered because we were able to get such credibility. When I started, the average uh, seminar was $500 and we were selling them for $15,000 and $20,000 and selling them out. That's the power of credibility. It describes automatic integrity and unique supreme value. A more fascinating one, I used to do seminars four times a year, very expensive ones in China. And I did them for 15 years. And the first time I did it, very fascinating. It's all through translation. At the end, we would do Q&A. A young man comes to the mic and he very 
uh, sincerely says in his question, Jay, what do you do if your business is too small and the banks won't lend you money to grow? And I said, okay, well, tell me more. He said, well, I'm a small local motorcycle manufacturer, not only in a country like China, where you have a hundred million population city, would you be a local motorcycle manufacturer? And he said, I, I want to try to raise the money to go all over Asia and then find a, a manufacturing facility there, open offices in all the countries, hire salespeople, recruit dealers. And so I'm I'm going, okay, but what's the problem? And the guy's getting irritated. He goes, I told you I can't get the money. And I said, you don't need the money. You really don't. Your problem is always, or your goal is always the solution to somebody's bigger problem. You just have to figure out what it is. And I said, go all over Asia, find somebody in a non-competitive complementary business that's got a huge underutilized production, has salespeople, offices, dealers, and make a partnership. It took me like whatever, 30 seconds. I came back 15 months later, true story. The guy did what I said. He came to the mic again. He said, I did what you said. And I didn't remember because very candidly, my whole life is spent solving problems, identifying opportunities, untangling Gordian knots. And I said, well, tell me what I told you. And he told me, I said, what'd you do? He said, I went over Asia. When I got to Kuala Lumpur, I found Asia's largest lawnmower manufacturer. They had a massive second shift they weren't using. They made a deal where they provided the people. I just had to bring the tools and dies. And if you don't know what those are, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about your listeners or viewers. They're the metal that forges the parts and the assemblies that make the whatever you're making. He said they had salespeople and offices in, I don't remember, 10 countries. They had thousands of dealers. In our first year together, we both made $10 million for almost no investment. That's the kind of power in this. But I can give you thousands of examples. We've done it mostly at a larger scale, but I mean, throughout through, I mean, now McDonald's will partner with Disney. You said you got, I mean, everyone partners at, you know, I was young enough or old enough, excuse me. I can remember when you were, you know, in a grocery and they didn't have banks, they didn't have subways. I can remember the same on highways, but now people have figured out that you get all this advantage by taking advantage of someone else's. So the question always to ask is, what do people buy before, during, after, instead? What is similar but not competitive? And when you ask those questions, you get macro answers. Then you look up companies in those fields, and then you start figuring out how you can give them advantage. And if you understand things like I said, if you have a product that sells many times and you understand you don't have to play a front-end game, you can play a much more sophisticated, strategic, long-term game. You can do all kinds of things. I hope that answers your question. I got lots more examples. It does. This is such an interesting topic to me because I feel like it's so underutilized. A lot of entrepreneurs feel like they've got to do everything on their own and they've got their eyes closed to all of these collaboration opportunities that are available to them. I love the example that you gave with McDonald's. So a company like Disney is going to offer free toys to McDonald's so they can promote their movies. McDonald's customers are happy. They get a toy and their happy meal. And Disney's happy because they're promoting their show. So it's a win-win for everyone. I guess my, my last question on this topic is, what are the types... You were alluding to them, but what are the types of questions that you should ask yourself when you're trying to find that right company to partner with? I think a big one is... If a company has the same audience as you, but they're not your competitor, then how can you team up with them? How what benefits can you provide them? You, you, you can. I don't want to. I don't want to 
a challenge it, but you can even team up with somebody who's a competitor. When I was in the seminar business, we taught a certain methodology and system for growing a business, and it was very powerful, but it wasn't the only. And after people bought everything I had to sell, I would go out and find people that had really cool alternative means. And I would go to my database and say, look, I taught you what I know, but it's not the only way you can build on it. You have certain things that are going to work better in different scenarios. And we sold tons of our competitors. But if you ask yourself, okay, as I said, who sells to my audience in a related form? That's the first question. Then who sells to my audience in an unrelated form? Because you might find somebody that's not even logical, but has the audience you want. I mean, during the during COVID, for example, there were all these high-end, you know, Michelin-type independent restaurants that couldn't do anything, and they were dying. And I helped a bunch of them that had some of the most amazing clientele, but had no nothing to sell because they couldn't open. And we structured deals with them where they introduced them to you know, luxury car dealers, and they introduced their clients to jewelers and and private villas because people only wanted to travel there. And they made tons of money and survived just because they never thought about that correlation, if that makes sense. But you figure out who already has a trusted access directly and credibly to your audience. How can you figure out how to directly or indirectly, directly means go right at it for an offer, indirectly means educate, value, create, you know, do whatever you're going to do. And then how can you make it worth their while, either economically, psychically, value add? You know, we've done deals where we went to people and said, as you said, with the toys, we'll give you a massive bonus you can give you know, advantage to what you sell, particularly what you sell seems like a commodity. Now it's a proprietary because we're giving you something that would cost us $10 and you're not paying anything or cost us 20. And we did it because we knew that every time we gave away 10 or $20 to 10 people, five of them would come back and buy something for a hundred or 200 or 500 over and over again. But you have to understand strategically, you have to understand what I call consequential or critical thinking. And most people aren't really skilled in that. I just want to pause here for my listeners and let them know that Jay is the real deal. Like I interview expert after expert after expert. And when I was reading Jay's stuff, I just kept getting so excited because it's not that it's so complex, but it's just so good in terms of the strategies. They're so actionable. And that's what we're all about here at Young and Profiting Podcast. So the next piece of wisdom that I want to get from you is something that really excited me. And that's your strategy of preeminence. And for me, when I read your material on that, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is what I've been doing with Yap Media, but I just never knew it. And now I can kind of fine tune and actually give some direction to what I was doing. So for my listeners who don't know, strategy of preeminence is all about becoming the preeminent choice in your industry. So being the one who is... There's no other better option. You are the best option for your clients. So I definitely want to stay on this topic for a while, dig deep. First of all, what does a preeminent business look like? Well, it's interesting. The preeminent business is seen in whatever category, high price, low price, product, commodity. um, I mean, not commodity, product, service as the only viable choice you can make as if it has any correlation to guide you, it's the most trusted advisor, the go-to source, 
that you would turn to for life for yourself and anyone else you would refer to them. And it's a very, I got, I should probably give you a history real quickly because I wish I could say it was original. I, I had a, a discussion earlier with a really cool guy. There's a guy that has a company called EOS and he's really interesting. We we're talking about the fact that I don't believe there are as many, there are as many original thinkers but I think there's some very original synthesizers, and I would call myself a synthesizer who can take filaments and weave it into a fresh fabric. So I had a client 25 years ago that was in the publishing business, and their business was three times larger than their closest competitor. They charged 50 to 100% more. They had far more repeat and multi-buyers, and they ended up selling it, I'm talking about decades ago for $650 million, which was a lot. And when I was introduced to them, I exchanged them. My, my, my fees are very high. You probably know that. I traded them a half a million dollars of my time for the privilege. And I learned that this is the greatest investment. Most people don't understand that you can, you can get such explosive understanding that can be monetized by you know, exchanging with people, whatever you've got for the privilege to pick their mind openly and, and not covertly. And I spent a week interviewing everybody that was critical in the business, the CEO, the, 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 the architect of their philosophy, their, their executives, their managers. And I took thousands, literally thousands of pages of notes, and I distilled it into what I call the strategy preeminence. And it starts with this belief that you want to be the most trusted advisor, the only possible source they could turn to, and that the only way you can do that is by caring more, doing more, being more in the eyes of the audience. And you can't do that if you're not willing to, first of all, understand, you know, examine, understand, appreciate, acknowledge, recognize and really go deep to, to understand who, what, why, how your audience is, and not just superficially, but seeing beyond just a transaction, but as a human being. The next is you have to have a positioning that is distinctive, not the same thing everyone else is. You have to have a point of view that animates their spirit and gets them thinking differently, whether it's more depth or whether it's a different take. You've got to be willing, and this is, gets really interesting, to never allow anybody to buy more than they should or less than they should in less quantity, quality combination than they should. Not because you're going to lose money, but because you're always guiding and advising them as their most trusted advisor and what's going to give them the best outcome for what they're doing. And sometimes letting them buy less is bad. I, I used an example when I did seminars, and I'll use this. Can you see this? It's a half-filled uh, bottle of water. If you had a bottle water shop and a water bar, and I came in and wanted to buy one half bottle of water or one half glass, let's say half glass, and you sold it to me without first making sure that I knew that I needed seven and a half more of those each and every day to keep my brain functioning, my cellular structure worrying, working, my, my uh, mind balanced and grounded, my stress level down, my, you know, my system flowing, you know, excreting, peeing, all those things. And you let me do it without making sure I was aware you wouldn't be preeminent. You would be opportunistic. Mm 
Now, it doesn't mean I have to do it. If you sold me eight, eight glasses, but I only came every two days and you didn't do the same to make sure in between, I was aware that you can't save those eight glasses, you would be stealing from me. The next thing is you have to put into words, feelings, thoughts, aspirations, intentions that, that the prospective buyer has never felt or experienced before. And if you ask me to tell you my Amazon.com school of business, I'll tell you that it's very cool. The next is you, you have a moral responsibility, a privilege and an opportunity if you really are operating at a higher level and you're bringing a higher level of value, caring, protection, enhancement, whatever your product or service delivers to not let the person not buy from from you if they should and not by your from your competitor not because the competitor is a you know a so and so but because the client will be deserved i use the word client very very uh, purposely most people call someone they do business with a customer if you look up the webster's definition of a customer it's someone who buys a commodity or a service if you call me a customer, what you're saying between the lines is I'm no better than everyone else. And I'm lucky as hell that I get the business that you favor me because I have no value beyond just happenstance and fortuitous good fortune, my location or us crossing paths. That's not what you want. If you call me a client, even if you're a professional and, and you're dealing with patients, a patient's definition is below a client. A client is someone under the care, the protection, the well-being of another. By the way, you have three kinds of clients, and we're talking to entrepreneurs, business owners, and also managers. It, one, and certainly are the ones that pay you, but the other two are the ones you pay, your team members, employees, your vendors, and advisors. Most, and today I think it's changed, but most entrepreneurial business people try to squeeze everything they can out of their team instead of trying to grow and develop everything they should. But the more you grow and develop, the more loyal, the harder working, the more valuable they become. So it's a mindset. You use metaphors and similes to make your points because that's neuro-linguistically how the mind works. So I, I do want to stick on this clients versus customers and just kind of drive home some points for my listeners. So first of all, the strategy of preeminence, it's about serving your clients, not selling to them. And you never, like you said, you don't want to sell them too much or too little. You want to actually advise them to do the best thing for them. You want to be their advisor, whether there's monetary gain to that or not. And you want to be a good advisor to them while they're doing business with you, before they're doing business with you, and even after they're doing business with you. So talk to us about the importance of keeping that relationship. And you fall in love with your client. Most people fall in love with the wrong thing. They fall in love with their, their career or their industry or their company or being the fastest growing. That's not where you, become, where you attain preeminence. When you fall in love with your, your client and you live to see your product or service animated at work in their lives, even if you were a, an ice cream vendor in the park, you would see that for 10 or 15 minutes of solace, you give you know someone who's taking a break from work the chance to go back into their childhood and have a wonderful nostalgic relief and reminiscence, and you take great pride in knowing you're creating that. If you're selling something that's uh, expensive or not, but you know 
that when it's at work in their life, it's protecting, enhancing, enriching, and entertaining. You live with that kind of a transactional, not transactional, but uh, what would I call it? More of a the animation of the product living and functioning in somebody's life or business. Very key distinction. I'm sorry to step on you. No, I, I think that's a really great point to drive home. So you talk about your clients as your friends. And this is something that I thought was really interesting because in business, a lot of the times people say separate your business from your personal, but you're pretty adamant about saying that your clients are actually great friends that you have deep relationships with. And I totally align to that. All my clients, I feel like are my friends, my mentors. I don't have any lines in that way. Talk to us about that and why you think that's a good mindset to have. You can't respect them for who they are, what they are, why they are. You can't serve them to any degree of of meaningful uh, significance. I have a very, my wife thinks I'm uh, diabolically uh, nasty because I, when I get a prospective client, I will pop into my house with them if we're out to lunch when she's not expecting she and her hair is in a mess and she's in her exercise and she's got stuff on her face. But I want to feel good inviting to my home and I want to see if they are real. And because I can't respect them, I can't serve them with full passion and paternalism and care as much, if not more about them than they do if I can't appreciate and enjoy them not just as a source of compensation to me, but a source of meaningful uh, stimulation, uh, value, enjoyment, and worth. And if I don't really appreciate them, I can't, and I don't take them, even if they have lots of money to spend, because I, I know I won't serve them well because there's, there, you know, it's, it's inauthentic. You have to be, to me, And I think it's true of even a job career. If you're not really passionate, I think there's three P's, passion, purpose, possibility. If you're not really passionately committed to not just what you're doing, who you're doing it for, why you're doing it, what doing it for them is going to mean, you can't really super achieve. If you're not a purpose, if you don't have a greater purpose than just making money or, you know, or or making it through the day or getting to the next level, you're not going to be great. Why would you want to be mediocre if you could be great? And if you don't see the possibilities that you uniquely can make catalytically in the interaction you have, whether it's selling somebody, managing somebody, serving somebody, then you're missing huge fulfillment. By the way, when you are preeminent, it's liberating, it's elevating you're operating at one of the most joyously intoxicating stratas of fulfillment, of interaction, of understanding. And, and it's like the whole world is a 3D movie and you have arguably the only pair of glasses. So it's quite wonderful. And I just used a metaphor to demonstrate it. Yeah. And I, I want to make sure that my listeners understand what preeminence really means. It means that you're no longer knocking on doors to get customers. The customers are coming to you because you're seen as the person. Your clients are referring you because you're doing the best job. You're their trusted advisor. They can't even think about anybody else who could do it better than you. So describe to us what it looks like when you are the preeminent business or person in your industry, because I want people to understand what that means and how can they tell if they have it or they don't. It means the first thing is that they're in the relationship 
for a different reason than most everyone else around or comparable. They're in it because they want to make a better contribution. They want to add more value and they understand what value means to the other side. They are not selfless. Most selfish thing you can do is be externally focused because that's going to make the fastest. It's going to reward you the fastest. It means that you are always, always telling people the truth, what you feel. It means you are always making yourself aware of whatever you're doing and how it affects everyone else in the food chain. It means that you wake up in the morning thinking how much, if you're dealing with a lot of people as a company selling, how many, how many lives, how many companies are we going to help transform or enhance or protect today? It means that you, you don't, Think in terms of how much money is on, it came into the, the cash register today. You're thinking about how many organizations, individuals did we get the chance to serve? And, and then you think in terms of service. I have a very interesting, and if you read, if you didn't, it's no, no problem. But one of my first trade books, which is called uh, Getting Everything You Can Out of All You Got, we made a very important point. We said that when people go to a hardware store to buy a drill, they don't really want a drill. They want a hole. And if you think about it as, as a uh, consequential thinker, they don't want a hole. They want to fasten something. And they don't really even want to fasten something. They want to watch their 85-inch big screen TV tonight uh, on Netflix, or they want to have the water come out of the new sink, or they want the lock to latch on the back door. And when you live in that kind of a mindset, you possess the purest, a single attribute that people strive for most of their life and never know how to get. And that's absolute ethical advantage over everyone else. But it's pure. If I'm going to do this with you, I want to make darn sure that I'm not intellectual entertainment, that I move the people watching, listening, irrespective of whether they're entrepreneurs, executives, CEOs, employees, employers, to a higher level of understanding and thus a higher level of action, transaction, contribution, fulfillment. And, and that's what being preeminent is all about. Hold tight, everyone. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Hey, AppFam, starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify's got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. 
from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, and she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify Magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. So you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, if you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Young and profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. In the past, it would take me so long to find hires. I have to go on all these different job sites. I have to create my own skills assessments. That's why I let Indeed do a lot of this heavy lifting for me. Indeed is the powerful hiring platform where I can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed has things like skills assessments, where when we have specific roles, We can find an assessment that matches that role and we can make sure they have the skills that we need. Then I can focus on culture fit. I can make sure they're scrappy enough and are obsessed with excellence and do all the things that we need to do for them to fit in at YAP. And Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools like Instant Match. An Instant Match basically matches you with candidates as soon as you put up a job post with people who are qualified right away. It's instant. And the best part is it gets better as you use it. So now when I use Indeed, especially when I'm hiring for similar roles, I get people right away where they know that I'm gonna like the candidates because they can see what my preferences were in the past. It gets better as you use it. According to US Indeed data, the moment Indeed sponsors a job, over 80% of employers get candidates whose resumes are a perfect match for the position. It's like waving a magic wand that gets better as you use it. So I love using Indeed. We've found a lot of our A players on there. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide who count on Indeed to hire their next superstar like we do at Yap Media. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash profiting. Offer is good for a limited time. Claim your $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash profiting. Again, that's indeed.com slash profiting and support the show by saying you heard about it on Young and Profiting Podcast. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I got to say the strategy of preeminence, if I were you listening in, I would start Googling it, read Jay's articles, read Jay's book, getting everything you can out of all you've got because it's really powerful stuff. And if you learn how to do this, 
it's basically learning human behavior in business and how to how to use your human behavior in business to do the right thing, serve your clients, but also generate leads without really trying that hard because you just become the best option in the market. So I think that's really powerful. So let's talk about another strategy that you talk about pretty often, uh, which is all about increasing your clients. And it's the difference between the Parthenon method and the diving board method. And this has to do with your marketing channel. So the diving board method is really having one channel. It's basically like a floppy diving board. There's ups and downs, uh, booms and busts. It's not really the best approach. And then the Parthenon method is all about having multiple channels. So if you guys know what the Parthenon is, it's these Greek structures that you might have seen in your history books with uh, you know five different columns. It's pretty sturdy. It's, they last for thousands of years. And you really want to go with a multi-channel approach. So talk to us about the importance of multi-channel approaches with your lead generation and why you believe in uh, the Parthenon method. Well, you started off, I mean, most businesses, ironically, they generate most of their revenue from one source. And sometimes it's a it's a passive source like word of mouth. And if anything happens to compromise that, people can't come to your store, you can't, gas prices are too expensive, the airlines aren't flying, the airlines are flying, but nobody's in their office. You're pretty screwed if that's the only source of revenue that incremental revenue can double or triple your profit, particularly if you don't have a lot of corresponding fixed overhead. But more importantly, it leverages your advantage many ways. The first way is it lets you penetrate your market in different access vehicles that you're not getting from one thing. Uh, Second, a lot of people, depends on on the type of product service you're selling, but the more expensive or the more abstract or the more conceptual. It takes many different touches. Most people try to get those touches through one mechanism, but if you're touching me from many vantage points, if you have a sales force, if you're doing social media, if you email, if you're doing endorsements, if you're running ads on podcasts, you're doing all these Some of them don't even have to make money. They can break even, but strategically benefit the whole of it. But you you haven't introduced my three-way to go business, but it's the ultimate exercise in working on the geometry of a business because you increase three different categories, 10% each, and it's 33% increase in revenue. But if you doubled all three, it would be at 800%. It seems a little confusing, but back to to the the Power Parthenon, if you have one revenue source and I get you to have seven or eight more and each one's only 5% more here, 8% more here, 10% here, 3%, that combination is not eight or 10, it's more like hundreds of percent, number one. Number two, you're gonna get people that you haven't been able to reach from the other ones. Number three, you're gonna be moving people who aren't yet, uh, compelled because there's a great uh, a friend of mine named uh, I don't remember her name now. She did all the stuff for Salesforce, and they figured there's four, four or five categories of people. People who are oh Mary Lou Tyler, do you know her? Mm-mm. Really great person, and they wrote a book called Predictable Revenue. But they figured out there's four different categories of people. I think one is you know capable but not interested yet, interested but not 
you know, decisive, interested, but uh, decisive but not committed, all these things. But you're moving and you're reaching them from different vantage points. Those of you who have ever studied military warfare, and I'm not trying to be a negativist, but the military uses the quintessential understanding of this and what is called force multiplier effect. Simply put, if you and I were at war and I wanted to win, what I would do is I would use a continuous, uh, I would access you and I would penetrate your country from as many different concurrent vantage points as possible. I would knock out your infrastructure, your roads, your airports, your, your, your rails, your, your, your ports. I would knock out your communication, probably with surface-to-air missiles. Then I would do bombs. Then I would do maybe attack drones. Then I would do maybe tanks. And then I might do infantry. And all I cared about was I won the war. But if you understand that the leverage in going after your market from many different expanded approaches, then your comp- everything in business whether you like it or not, it's who's got advantage, isn't it? There's a funny saying, if you have 99 ways to say no, and I have 100 ways to get you to say yes, and we stay in dialogue long enough, I win. But most people don't understand, whatever you do in your life, job, career, profession, business, finance, you want to be engaged in those actions, activities, moves, and maneuvers that have the highest ethical probability of giving you massive advantage. Isn't that right? So I I just learned to operate in a world where you have massive advantage over everybody else. So you tease this out. So I want to make sure that we can cover it for my listeners. A lot of people think that there's like hundreds of ways to increase revenue and profit in a business. But you really say there's three main ways. What are those three main ways? Yeah, it's easy. You increase the number of buyers, you increase the size of the transaction and thus the profit that transaction yields. And then you increase the frequency or utility value of transactions. So more buyers higher sales per transaction, more transactions longer. If you do all, just one of those, it's an incremental growth, but if you do all three together and you increase them, it's a geometric growth. Uh, There's, there's, you know, and there's probably 30 ways in each of those categories that most people wouldn't even think about. I mean, I'll give you the most hilarious thing that I, I have discovered in my work and it's something that's close to my heart. So, If you had, again, use our hypothetical, 1,000 people in a seminar room who were entrepreneurs or business heads, and you ask them, does any part of your business come from referral or word of mouth, unless they're a very unique type of uh, business that's so private and personal that nobody would tell anyone else, the odds are that 5%, 10%, sometimes 100% comes. So we would interview the people and say, if if at least 20 to 100% of your business comes from Referral, word of mouth, stand up. And we'd say, remain standing. And then I would randomly, this is hilarious, I would randomly pick 20. I'd say, okay, tell me the percentage in the dollars. And sometimes it's profound. Uh, 100%, $5 million. Uh, uh, 40%, $800,000. Uh, 30%, $10 million. Then I'd say, remain standing now only if you and your business have in place 
right now, at least one formalized, systematized, strategic referral generating approach that everyone uses constantly at, at, at appropriate points. 95% of the people that said yes, sit down. Then I'd say two approaches, 95% of the five sit down, three, they all sit down. Then I'd say, well, we've, we've studied, when you study a, a thousand industries, we found 125, 125, they're not all great ones, different referral generating systems or strategies that could be used. But then I'd say, everybody that sat down, raise your hand if you spend any money on salespeople, social media, trade show booths, and almost everybody did. And I'd say, well, let me ask you what's wrong with this picture. I believe that a externally generated lead buyer has very low trust. You got to move them from low trust to sort of trust to committed trust. And even when they buy the first time, they're not totally trusting. They're sort of like that. Whereas a referral generated buyer buys immediately, trusts immediately, negotiates less, buys larger quantities, buys more, buys more often, is more interesting and enjoyable to deal with, costs you nothing and refers more people. So what's wrong with this picture? But I mean, I've been taught by masters to think differently. And I hope this comes across and helps people shift a little bit their mental model and, and maybe uh, flips their their worldview a little bit uh, more towards strategic, consequential, uh, correlated thinking. Yeah. And that's why this kind of goes back to the strategy of preeminence. When you act as a trusted advisor and always act in the best interest of your clients, they'll happily recommend you to, to everybody else because they're being a good friend by recommending the, the best of the best. So one thing that I wanted to ask you, which is a personal question, to be honest, is do you provide some sort of incentive for clients to refer other clients or do you like do you discount if they provide a referral? I have a standard. I've helped. I've been very blessed. I've helped perhaps 300 A-class experts, uh, authors, trainers, people like Tony Damon, and they know that anybody significant they ever want to refer to me i'll buy them two hours of no no cost and no no self-serving strategy expert assessment everybody knows that secondly i think we tend to almost over contribute when we do anything that is let's say sample my methodology or my mindset we give so much that it's almost unprecedented. So we, we operate very differently. I'm very eclectic, probably uh, maybe a little iconoclastic, but I always try to give freely and I always try to do things that are in the best interest of the client. Last month, for example, I had a very lucrative client that got into trouble and I have a contract with them and they were willing to honor it, but it wasn't in their best interest. So I let them out but I gave them three months access just because it was the right thing to do. If you're playing the game at a higher level, you're having a good time and you're, do, you're, you're, you're almost intuitively driven and fueled by, by the ability to resonate and exude far more value. But I don't bribe anyone. In other words, if you said, Jay, uh, if I give you 
a client, will you give me something? I would say, yes, I'll give you a thank you. Maybe I'll send you a really beautiful, I've got a client that sells $500 boxes of chocolate, but I'm not going to give you money because I don't want it to be induced by anything but your preeminent belief that your client will be better served or your friend will be better served by me. And that, and, and, you know, it doesn't mean that's the best thing to do. And when I hear people go, okay, you mean give me a kickback? I go, Jesus. I mean, there are there are strategies where if it's fully disclosed, I've done it for clients where we had people recommend vendors and we told them that we were receiving a modest participation. But in exchange for that, we were that that audience's ombudsman. We were negotiating better pricing, better benefits, better protection, risk reversal, and better bonuses. And that if there was any, ever, any problem or discrepancy, we we were there to serve them. But we were not saying that they had to buy that person. We were saying that we represented them in an ethical, fully disclosed manner. But I think integrity is the key to everything. Yeah, I I totally agree. I haven't done that. I was just wondering, because I know that a lot of people want some sort of like recurring fee, some, some, some people, like I've gotten some people saying they either want a discount or they want some sort of referring fee for referring people. But I totally am aligned with you. It's kind of just like, if I get a referral, I get a referral. That doesn't mean I won't serve somebody. I will help almost anybody that wants to help me and I'll help them even if they don't succeed. If I see that they really went the extra, you know, mile and they truthfully did everything possible and it didn't work out. But I don't believe in compromising my integrity to get business because I think that if you do that, then you sold out. I want people to come to me just like you you seem to because of the value we represent above and beyond the maddening crowd and the result, the benefit, the you know, the outcome that someone will get. But it doesn't mean I'm unwilling to add value beyond some economic. Now, that's different than if you retain someone whose job it is to find business and give that person participation. That's a difference. Somebody says, yes, I'm representing Jay. My job is to source for him qualified, seemingly compatible companies he can work long term on and share profits. That's different. I have those. But if somebody just says, hey, Jay, I want to refer a client to you, I would say I'm thrilled if you're doing it for the right reason. And if I can help you with your business reciprocally, I will be happy to. I just don't want to compromise what I think I stand for. And a lot of times we think, you know, we see ourselves in a maybe more delusional uh, elevation of uh, significance than we are. But I'd like to hope that I operate in a unique, rarefied and it sounds like you do too. And it's, it's, you know, that's the reason if people need to be, you know, to be bribed to do what's best at people they care about, they are anything but preeminent. They're not looking out after the best interest. They're looking out avariciously short term after their own. No, I love that. I think that was a great answer. So I know we are, we have about four minutes left. And so I do want to ask you the last question, which I ask all of my guests. And that is, what is your secret to profiting in life? And you can take this any direction that you want. Yeah, well, somebody, I mean, I've been so blessed by people. I've learned that wealth and compensation are denominated denominated in many ways, only one of which is financial. So 
profiting in life means constantly learning. Profiting in life means constantly contributing. Profiting in life means being able to associate with really interesting quality people that expand and challenge and enrich you. Profiting in life means that at the end of your life, you can, or whoever is going to speak for you says that was a life worth well lived in service to others. Amazing. Thank you so much. Everybody tuning in, go to jabraham.com. I know you have a meeting to head out to, so I'm going to let you go and let's connect uh, whenever you'd like. Thank you so much, Jay. Well, thank you. And I appreciate it a lot. You ask great questions and you have a vivacious sort of an effervescent, you're intoxicating in the most positive way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Man, I learned so much in this interview. And to be honest, I just have to pinch myself sometimes because I just feel so lucky. I get exposure to some of the world's greatest minds. And Jay is a true legend when it comes to business and marketing. And I'm so honored to even just have one hour with this man. And I feel like I learned so much that I can apply directly to Yap Media. And I'm sure you guys learned a lot to apply to your business lives. And to be honest, I couldn't put down his book, Getting Everything You Can out of all you've got. It's over 20 years old, but it's really filled with timeless strategies. And I graduated from my MBA about five years ago, and it was really just a great refresher for business strategy. One of my favorite parts of this conversation was when we brought up host beneficiary relationships or creating mutually beneficial partnerships with other companies. I love the example that Jay gave, Disney and McDonald's. Whenever Disney has a new movie to promote, they'll offer free toys to McDonald's to sell along with their kids' meals. This is brilliant. McDonald's is happy because their customers are incentivized to buy kids' meals with a toy, and Disney is happy because they're getting free promotion to their target audience, families. It's a true win-win scenario for both companies. You can implement this strategy too by determining who is already selling to and has the trust of the clients you want to be reaching. They would be selling something that either goes before, goes along with, or follows the product or service that you sell to people. Keep in mind that your product or service should not compete with their product or service, but rather should complement it. I do this all the time with Yap Media. For example, I've teamed up with PR agencies because the same clients that I serve for social and podcasts like authors and top podcasters and CEOs need PR. And those same clients that these PR agencies serve also need social media. So working together and referring each other is a win-win for both of us. Moving on to Jay's strategy of preeminence. This one really hit home for me. In fact, I made all my executives at Yap Media read an article on this because it resonated with me so much. And I feel like I've unknowingly been following this framework all along in my journey. Preeminence is an elusive quality desired by every organization and entrepreneur. It is being the preeminent choice or the no-brainer choice in your industry. The strategy of preeminence is a strategic mindset that champions the role of the team member, partner, or client. Its focus is on the receiver and their best interest. It really boils down to, I'm not trying to sell you, I want to serve you. 
You get preeminence by subordinating your needs and totally focusing on the other side. And in many cases, the other side is the client. You value service above else. You over-deliver and you're known as the top source of information. But in addition to your clients, you also need to sell to your team members and your vendors and partners. And so this concept of preeminence also applies to them as well. You must not only fall in love with the people who pay you, your clients, you also need to fall in love with the people you pay, your employees. Be committed to the success and progress of both. People who work for others perform at only 20% of their capacity. Remember that because people who work with a sense of a mission, who really enjoy their job and enjoy working for their boss can truly allow a company to achieve preeminence. It can be so powerful to simply change your focus from me, me, me to you. And this reminds me of something that Bob Berg said on episode number 150. When you focus on giving, you will naturally receive. Now, let's talk about the difference between calling people who pay us customers versus clients. I looked it up in the dictionary, and although these seem like identical words, they're absolutely not. A customer is one who purchases a commodity or a service. A client is one who is under the protection of another. That's a big difference. So when we call somebody a customer, we're telling them that they're no different than anyone else and the time they give us is only transactional. When we call somebody a client, we're telling them that we are protecting them and that we are their trusted advisor. Jay takes this even one step further and he says he calls his clients his friends and he makes sure he gets to know his clients well enough to become friends and he treats them like a good friend, always keeping their best interests in mind and truly caring about their needs, which is why they come back to him time and time again and refer him to their own friends. I can totally relate to this. Like I mentioned earlier, my clients are people that I have super close relationships with. It even feels weird to call them my clients. They're my friends, some of them my best friends, my mentors. We help each other and show genuine care for one another and know each other outside of these work relationships. And they turn to me as somebody they can trust. I always tell them the truth even if it means I have to lose a sale or downsize their account. I sell them exactly what they need, nothing less and nothing more. After my conversation with Jay, I realized I've been building and gaining this preeminence all along in my YAP journey. And I can tell you firsthand that this is really powerful. We don't ever need to advertise at YAP. It's our clients and the industry at large that is doing all the selling for us. It's the word of mouth referrals. And oftentimes I've landed the deal well before I even had that first conversation just because of the reputation we've built. Now that is preeminence. Well, I hope you all gained as many takeaways as I did from this conversation, and I hope you learned something new. I highly recommend that you guys go read Getting Everything You Can Out of All You've Got. The book is over 20 years old, but it is filled with timeless gems. You can check out the show notes if you want links to Jay's work. Thank you for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, go take a few minutes right now and drop us a five-star review. That is the number one way to thank us. You can connect with me on social media. You can find me on Instagram at yapwithhala or LinkedIn. You can search for my name. It's Hala Taha. Big thanks to the Yap team as always. This is Hala signing off.